0: This episode contains language that may not be suitable for all listeners. Please be advised.
1: When you see it outside of your window, it's the best feeling. People just cheer and clap when they arrive in Puerto Rico.
0: Gina Goodwin was born in Puerto Rico, where her mother, Kathy, is a dancer at the Americana Hotel. There, Kathy first meets a new opening act called Siegfried and Roy.
1: Back in the day when she was performing, she was in Puerto Rico and Siegfried and Roy happened to be opening up for her show. This is Puerto Rico. There's nonstop excitement, both night and day.
0: It's 1970 and Siegfried and Roy will soon open their show at the Stardust in Las Vegas. Until then, they sign a three-month contract to perform here.
1: It was pretty much what you would see in Vegas, but much smaller. I think Puerto Rico is a place where they ironed out a bunch of kinks. So one night they're having this house party and some guests noticed a bunch of water coming down the stairs. And someone said, you know, you might have a leak. There might be a plumbing issue upstairs or something. Is everything okay? And (laughs) it's different where I look at each other and go, Roger! They had a black panther that they'd locked in their bedroom, and he didn't like being locked up. And so the panther ripped open their water bed, and all the water from their mattress was just pouring down the hallway, down the stairs, flooded the house, party was over. Um, You know, they're still wild animals, and no matter how domestic they are, things happen. The superstars of magic. The mystifying. The most outstanding act in show business. Siegfried and Roy. Siegfried and Roy. Siegfried
2: and Roy. What really people want to know is, did they do it? It was as if whatever they did was
3: so secret. They thought that that would be advantageous to their
1: careers, and perhaps that nobody would see through it. Stimulate
0: the fantasy of the audience because without fantasy there is nothing. This is Wild Things, Siegfried and Roy. Hey boss, yeah, we could take the back way or we could take Las Vegas for the market. Whatever you think's gonna get us there, quicker. Yeah, we're we're gonna I'm in Las Vegas taking line a line cab line. to the place where Siegfried and Roy first become a blockbuster act. I was gonna test you by saying, can you take me to the Frontier?
4: Oh man, (laughs) you still remember that?
0: (laughs) You remember it though. Of
4: course, I've been here 34 years, boss. Yep, this is the lot.
0: Yeah. You have a good one, boss. Today, the Frontier Hotel and Casino is a 34-acre eyesore filled with sand and construction equipment. It's hard to picture now, but back in the early 1980s, the Frontier was the place to be. It's November 1981, and a midnight blue Rolls-Royce pulls up to the posh front entrance of the Frontier, where Siegfried and Roy's new show, Beyond Belief, is set to open this evening. Hundreds of fans clamor just to catch a glimpse of the magicians. Suddenly, Everyone's attention shifts towards the sky. A helicopter lands, and Siegfried and Roy step out onto a lavish red carpet. That Rolls-Royce was merely a decoy. Right, right here. Look this, way. this grand entrance is orchestrated by Roy and Irvin Feld, who owns the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey Circus. By 1981, Siegfried and Roy have been in Vegas for about a decade, but they've only been performing as part of a review alongside other acts. It is Irvin and his son Kenneth who approach Siegfried and Roy with an offer to headline their own show at the Frontier. The duo invite key crew members from the Stardust Hotel and Casino to join them.
5: The Frontier show had to add a lot of the different things that we didn't have.
0: Todd Gaulle is a stagehand at the Stardust, when he first begins working for Siegfried and Roy in 1970. When Todd is eventually promoted to general manager, he helps Siegfried and Roy overhaul and embellish their act for the frontier.
5: But we had to uh, build a passerelle so they could run, a, run around the stage into the audience. Also, uh, uh, added a lot of the holding areas for the horse, for the elephant, for the uh, lions and tigers. And, uh, so it was quite the project. They were perfectionists. The Frontier show was uh, special to have their own show and to build a show. I was excited.
0: Their show at the Frontier is the first full-length magic show in Vegas, and it's a hit. As the stages increase in size, so does their profile. Soon, the magicians are everywhere, from local TV commercials. And now Siegfried and Roy bring you pocket magic, available at Walgreens, to primetime ad campaigns. Hi, can I get you guys a course light? My name is Siegfried. And I'm Roy. We are the masters of illusion. Hey Siegfried. Behold! For nearly seven years, Siegfried and Roy performed two sold-out shows every night for more than three million people. By the late 1980s, they captured the attention of billionaire real estate developer Steve Wynn, who is building what will soon become the biggest casino in Vegas. And the largest hotel in the world.
5: Fantasy becomes reality when the mirage appears on the Las Vegas
2: Strip. The $620 million mega resort is the first built in Las Vegas in 15 years. It commands attention. He's gonna bring the best entertainment
5: here, I understand, and uh, give all the the hotels one for the money.
0: Siegfried and Roy sign a massive contract with Steve Wynn. At $57 million, it breaks Vegas records.
2: It was like any other reception to honor the signing of a new contract. There were limos, there were stars, and there were the star's friends. Siegfried and Roy's White Tigers made themselves at home at this celebration, but then again, why shouldn't they? Their masters just signed the largest contract in entertainment history.
0: Michael Jackson, the king of pop, becomes a friend and fan of the duo, and even writes the theme song for their new show. Because construction on the Mirage won't be completed for more than a year, the duo books a world tour. In 1988, they spend 10 months in Japan, performing for more than a million spectators. The tour ends with a four-week residency at New York City's legendary Radio City Music Hall.
5: When they had first come to the United States, they had gone to Radio City Music Hall and said, we will play this theater. That's our goal. That's our dream. What started out as a frontier show turned into this amazing traveling show.
0: When the tour is first announced, Siegfried and Roy fly out to New York with two Tigers for press appearances. Tigers have accompanied them on television before, and it's always gone smoothly, but this time is different.
2: The Tigers were on their way to appear on the CBS morning show when their trainers left them alone in a truck for a few minutes outside this coffee shop.
5: So the guys are there. I think they're sitting over at uh, Carnegie Deli, or one of the Coffee shop. So we're truck is parked on the street. And somebody got up and got in the truck, and they, either the keys were there or whatever. Somebody probably thought they were getting a load of furniture or luggage or something. But unfortunately, for them, there were two tires in the back.
0: Right as they are about to go live on CBS, Siegfried and Roy discover their cats are missing. And Roy's, Roy's on national TV just begging him to bring them back. Please don't hurt him. It's our soul, it's our heart, it's what we are living for. And on the way here to the studio, the car has been stolen with the babies in it. The White Tigers are reportedly the first to be bred in captivity and are insured for more than $2 million. New York City Mayor Ed Koch steps in, and soon the NYPD are out hunting for the stolen vehicle.
5: The police found the truck abandoned on a residential street in the Bronx. The people in the neighborhood knew that there was something very strange about this truck. And when I walked by the truck the first time in the morning, I heard something wrong, you know, and I was getting a kick out of it. And I said, damn, what's somebody got? Must got tigers in the truck. Somebody had just abandoned the truck with the cats inside. And later that night, and the police found them. Nobody got hurt. The cats didn't get hurt. Whoever stole them just opened and said,
2: holy cow.
0: Later that day... Siegfried and Roy hold a press conference at the police station. I must say, this day, it has begun with a nightmare and has ended glorious. The Tigers are fantastic. I got a big concert as I went into the truck, and everybody is very happy to be united. Rumors swirl that the Tiger theft is actually a publicity stunt. And to be honest, I can understand why. Making Tigers vanish and then suddenly reappear is actually kind of their M.O., Plus, if you think back to that time they showed up to the frontier in a helicopter after using a limousine as a decoy, it does make you wonder. But the folks we talked to swear that the stolen truck was absolutely real and not an illusion.
5: Zinktree got so mad and his because Roy got so emotional. But they were like his children.
0: With all the drama behind them, the duo finally venture off on tour with a plane full of gigantic set pieces and exotic animals.
5: And the pilot said it was the heaviest load he'd ever taken. We rolled in 50 semi-trucks to load into Radio City Music Hall. We had to shut that whole street down, and everybody we had people on radios. We had to keep the elephant in Long Island and bring her in every day.
0: After their sold-out runs in Japan and Radio City, Siegfried and Roy returned to Las Vegas and prepare to open their new show at the Mirage.
6: Well, I first met them in... 1989 as they were returning from Radio City Music Hall and they were coming back in anticipation of opening their show at the Mirage
0: Alan Feldman is a PR consultant hired to oversee the opening of the Mirage just like when Siegfried and Roy overhauled their show for the Frontier they do so again only this time they go even bigger I
6: don't think it was a big gamble for the Mirage. Siegfried and Roy and Kenneth Feld, they were the ones who were taking the big gamble because what they could have done was they could have taken the show at the frontier, reworked it and expanded it and put it into the Mirage and it would have, it would have done fine. It may not have blown the socks off people, but it, it would have been successful. What they did instead was they completely redid a show. They went out and hired some of the best of uh, Broadway and, and West End designers and directors and choreographers and, and scenic people. I mean, they got John Napier, who had, had done Les Mis and, and Cats and dozens of other things. I mean, a fantastic designer. John Caird, who was a director from Royal Shakespeare Company the National Theatre in England, Anthony Von Last, a choreographer of several ballet companies, and on and on and on. I mean, this this was just an all-star list of people who, by the way, I think among them, maybe one of the group had ever even been to Las Vegas, let alone worked on a show in Las Vegas. And it showed that. I mean, it it was, <laughs> it was honestly as extraordinary a piece of theater, piece of you know, performance art as you would see in the United States anywhere. Man, they they created a spectacle. It, it really was. And that was the risk. I think Siegfried and Roy probably put everything they had into the show financially. And if this thing didn't work, Siegfried and Roy would have taken the, the hit.
0: The Mirages Theater will seat 1,500 nearly twice the size of the frontier. Siegfried and Roy hire 170 cast members and additional crew to pull off this super-sized show. In November 1989, the Mirage finally opens, and the press conference is suitably over the top.
5: Steve Wynn stepped out of his hotel, got on a radio
0: like this one, and said, Security, this is Mr. Wynn. Let him in. Today is a great day. A dream came true. Baby rash has not terrorized. When their new show premieres a few months later, it's an instant success. Because there's no nudity in Siegfried and Roy's act, families with children start buying tickets in record numbers. The wonderful thing about Siegfried and Roy's show is that
5: you didn't have to be over 21 to watch it. It wasn't salacious or erotic. It was big and sensual, but you could take anybody to it.
0: In the early 1990s, my own parents will take a trip to Las Vegas and come home raving about what they'd witnessed at the Mirage. At the time, I was at sleepaway camp. Of all the FOMO I've experienced in my life, that's gotta be in the top five.
6: Since opening at Mirage, they have sold out at a rate of 104% capacity for every show. That's at $90 a seat. And they have an estimated net worth of more than a hundred million.
3: They were one of the pioneers of transforming Las Vegas into what it is today.
0: Writer Annette Tappert isn't exaggerating.
3: Because of the magic, because of the animals, Siegfried and Roy were able to create a crossover audience, which was families, people who wanted a, quote, clean entertainment so it wasn't just a review with a lot of Las Vegas showgirls wearing fringed pasties and little thong bikini bottoms and headdresses.
0: We felt that Vegas was ready for a change, so, We decided to make it a theatrical experience, to go a new dimension, to be, you may want to say, pioneering in a new era.
3: They were Las Vegas phenomenons, but they didn't really have a a social life because they worked so hard during the week. You know, two shows a night, six days a week doesn't leave you much uh, time and the production was enormous. It wasn't like they were doing a 30-minute show in the middle of a Las Vegas review like they used to. And then when they'd have time off, they'd go to Puerto Rico, and they just wanted
1: to rest.
3: Puerto Rico, the shining
1: star. You know, they call Puerto Rico the island of enchantment. And I think that's something really magical about that.
0: Gina Goodwin now lives in Arizona, but she enjoys traveling back home and visiting the neighborhood where her mother, Kathy, first meets Siegfried and Roy decades earlier.
1: They lived in an area called Isla Verde. It's right outside of San Juan, literally two streets from the beach. <laughs> you know, these men get to hang out on the beach all day, and it just the stories are endless, really.
0: Like Gina, Siegfried and Roy see Puerto Rico as a pleasant destination to enjoy their downtime.
1: Invigorating is one way had describe the air nourishing is another one. It just feels like you're being hugged. <laughs> They'd go to the beach all the time. They'd have beach parties, play beach volleyball. What was that game where you, where you sit on the other person's shoulders in the water and you chicken fight? Was it something like that? Yeah, they did that a lot.
0: Over the years, the duo vacation in Puerto Rico, where they relax on the beach and throw house parties. Puerto Rico becomes a safe haven where they can just be themselves, It's also where they go to escape personal troubles.
3: Siegfried went through a low point, and I think that had to do a lot from the stress of performing. They were working very hard without much of a break, and he needed something to calm his
0: nerves. During Annette's interviews for the duo's autobiography, Siegfried and Roy confide in her about the stresses of stardom
3: when Siegfried was having issues with Valium. I think it was, it was hard. He was sort of a zombie, and it started to uh, infringe on Siegfried and Roy's relationship. They were fighting a lot, bickering a lot, and at one point, you know, they had lived together, and I think one of them moved out. And as Roy said, you know, I was thinking of maybe starting my own act with, in Reno with an elephant, but he said, which was a dumb idea because I hate Reno. But fortunately, Siegfried caught it in time before he hit a downward spiral. And uh, when it was time for their two-week break to go away on a vacation, he went to Puerto Rico and weaned himself off pills.
0: Puerto Rico is also where Siegfried and Roy get away from the media spotlight. As their celebrity grows, society becomes increasingly obsessed with the duo's private lives. Soon enough, the question of their sexual identity actually becomes a punchline.
5: You guys know more about gay culture. (laughs) We do. Ben Siegfried and
1: Roy.
0: (laughs) Despite all the scrutiny and speculation, they will never publicly address their sexuality. That void of silence gets filled with tasteless ridicule, like this sketch from Mad TV.
1: One
5: more step and we might just go up in flames. We are not afraid to be on fire. Flaming is our middle name.
2: They came of age in an era in which were they to perform before a public? Being openly queer was just not viable.
0: Jonathan Katz is a queer activist and associate professor at the University of Pennsylvania. He teaches classes in gender and sexuality. You try to
2: hide it. It's an aspect of shame. They had to develop a thick skin. And of course, there were no protections. No question to me that the more outlandish the denial, the more actually pleasurable it was for a homophobic straight culture to watch. There's a great pleasure... In seeing a kind of queer minstrelry, which is what Siegfried and Roy really were, a pleasure that manifestly queer people are being forced to deny their identity, their subjectivity, for the pleasure of a straight audience.
0: The fixation on their sexual identity also fuels rumors about the duo's health. When the show closes for more than two weeks in 2001, the official reason given to the media is that Siegfried is suffering from the flu. But folks begin whispering, and rumors spread. Suddenly, people are saying Roy is battling HIV.
7: Any time there were you know any kind of health issues with them, there were people who probably presumed, whether they had any reason to know or not, that there was some HIV-related thing.
0: Along with reporting on the tiger attack, Steve Freese is also a former writer for The Advocate, the oldest and largest American publication serving the LGBTQ community.
7: Celine Dion took off for weeks at a time when she had this or that. Nobody ever said, oh gosh, she's probably got breast cancer or, or AIDS or anything like that. Um, they just assumed that she wasn't well because, you know, people get sick time to time and they have to cancel shows.
0: As far as I can tell, The rumor about Roy's alleged battle with HIV is just that, hearsay. But I was pretty stunned to discover the salacious gossip goes even further.
7: I remember there was a a rumor for a long time that Roy had died of AIDS. And they they found somebody who looked like him. (laughs) And they gave him plastic surgery and they came back. And I don't know if anybody really believed it, but it was a very, very frequently said claim.
2: I mean, it, I, I remember this whole incident and I remember the rumors and it just seemed to be of a piece with the extraordinary cruelty of that moment. What ultimately this indicated was that there was actually no real recognition of human loss because we were queers. Whatever we were undergoing didn't count.
0: What's disturbing is how the vitriol towards Siegfried and Roy actually seems to intensify after the tiger attack. Just listen to media outlets like TMZ. <laughs> Harvey, they found Manticore naked, tied up in a closet with a rope around his neck and his genitals. Why
3: are you making fun of this, Harvey?
0: <laughs> Back in the day, as a, as a gay man and a writer you know, watching those things and hearing the crowd laugh, is that something that bothered you? I mean, you know,
7: I mean, there was there was a long period there where, as just a gay person in this country, it was a little bewildering that you couldn't say these kinds of things about a lot of other minorities, but you could just say those things about gays, and it was fine. I used to have a, a real hard time with Saturday Night Live. I mean, I can't tell you how many of the skits were one after the next. The joke, essentially, was that there was something sort of queer going on there.
1: The ambiguously gay
5: duo. Tonight's episode, a hard one to swallow. It's
7: amazing what, what's normal until it's not normal anymore.
0: I have to imagine that Siegfried and Roy avoid discussing their sexuality in order to preserve their careers and they're not alone in carrying that burden. Hollywood has a dark history of forcing stars to misrepresent themselves, all for the sake of holding on to the spotlight. This is all well before my time, so I was shocked to learn about what happened to actors like Tab Hunter.
5: Hello, I'm Tab Hunter, and I've got a secret.
0: In the 1950s, Tab is one of Warner Brothers' top-grossing actors. When he begins dating Natalie Wood the star of now-classic films like Miracle on 34th Street and Rebel Without a Cause, Hollywood buzzes with excitement. But the relationship is a PR stunt, arranged by the studio to obscure the truth. It's not until the release of Tab's autobiography in 2005 that he publicly acknowledges his sexual identity.
1: You were marketed as the boy next door, the, the Hollywood heartthrob. Exactly. Well,
4: well, that's a label they stick on you to 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 sell you, to build you up. That's mm-hmm. all part of the hoopla. Mm-hmm. That's all part of that system, and they grind it out like a like a sausage factory. You know.
0: That's Tab singing "Young Love."
7: If you were a, uh, a journalist in, the, in that era uh, covering Hollywood and you wanted to see the, the previews and interview the stars and you knew something about a star that was gay, you wanted to report. You couldn't because it was seen as indecent and inappropriate.
0: The same year Young Love spends six weeks at number one on the Billboard chart, Siegfried and Roy meet on that cruise ship. I can't pretend to know how these two young men feel about anything but there's little chance they somehow miss what's going on across the Atlantic.
7: At the time, you know, I mean, attitudes about gay people and just the idea of gay sex and gay relationships, it was just very not okay.
5: Most Americans are repelled by the mere notion of homosexuality. The CBS News survey shows that two out of three Americans look upon homosexuals with disgust, discomfort,
0: or fear. CBS airs a special called The Homosexuals in 1967, the year Siegfried and Roy arrive in the U.S. and begin performing at the Tropicana. 40 million Americans tune into the controversial broadcast, which features interviews with psychiatrists.
2: Homosexuality is in fact a mental illness which has reached epidemiological proportions.
7: The public was much more religious and much more conservative. There was just a lot of things that people didn't understand. In more recent years, say in the 80s, 90s and and aughts, there was plenty of inappropriate journalism about obviously or provably gay people that the media ignored. I, I think of Ricky Martin, for example.
4: I think that sexuality is something that each individual should deal with in their own way.
5: You know, you could stop these rumors. You could say, as many artists have, yes, I am gay. Or you could say, no, I'm not. Or you could leave it as you are, ambiguous.
6: But Barbara, for
4: some reason, I just don't feel like it.
0: As soon as we started working on this podcast... I remember so many people asking me questions like, were they a couple? They lived together, right? Were they ever married? Initially, I assumed our podcast had to attempt to answer these questions because that's what the public is still seemingly dying to know. But all those questions actually say more about us than they do Siegfried and Roy. Over the years, they always find a way to sidestep the answers while still emphasizing their closeness. Here's Barbara Walters yet again, prodding another celebrity about his sexual identity.
2: Sigfried, it's a very unusual relationship you two have. You are...
0: That's true. Brothers? We are brothers. We are actually
1: more than brothers. Are you lovers? I love Roy like my brother.
0: Here's Todd DeGaulle, the duo's stage manager and close friend. His relationship with... uh... Siegfried was very
5: special, and it was a was a lovely relationship. You would see it. I mean, they were pretty outgoing in the way they treated each other and touched each other. It was just endearing because they were an item for years. You know, they were they were uh, partners.
0: Todd tells us he doesn't know when their relationship ends, but he does have a sense that at a certain point they stop being romantically involved. I don't, I, I don't know. Sure, I don't know for sure on mean, that. Probably still one where we're still at the frontier. The duo's autobiography, Siegfried and Roy: Masters of the Impossible," is finally released in 1992. The book is deeply personal and tackles their troubled childhoods and drug addiction, thanks to Annette's interviews. However, the book does not mention their relationship or their sexual identity.
3: Their sexuality was off limits. I will admit I was curious. I was curious, you know, who are they having romantic relationships with? And, you know, probably if this book were to be done today, it wouldn't fly. We would have to address this. What
2: really people want to know is, did they
0: do it? Here's Jonathan Katz again.
2: With Siegfried and Roy we wanted all the salacious details. We wanted to see the bed sheets. We wanted the most invasive information.
0: According to Jonathan, the attention around their sexual identity cuts both ways.
2: It may have produced a greater degree of ridicule, but in many respects it redounded to their benefit. It made their act of submission All the more powerful and probably made them more popular. And part of the great pleasure of seeing them was, of course, participating in this ritual of self denial. That, you know, they were as much performing animals as the animals they deployed. They knew the tricks, they did the tricks, no question about it. I think were they rising today, they would be flaunting their queer bona fides, their beauty and the pleasure of two queens putting 800 pound big cats in their place.
1: We stimulate the fantasy of the audience, because without fantasy, there is nothing.
0: You call them the world's most openly closeted celebrities. Sure. That sounds right. Yeah, well, so what does that
7: mean? They figured they were hiding in plain sight, which they were, as was Liberace. I mean, it was, you didn't have to spend too much time watching them to know what was going on there. But they didn't come out then.
6: You know, were Siegfried and Roy both in their 30s today and performing today, I don't know that their sexuality would matter
0: that's Mirage spokesperson Alan Feldman again.
6: And even if they were to discuss it, I don't know that a whole lot of people would care.
0: You know, they they were frequently tabloid fodder. The headlines and stories that were being written in places like the National Enquirer were just awful. Did you ever talk to them about how they felt about that that kind of attention?
6: I don't ever recall, you know, looking at it with them or talking to them about it or giving it any credence. And I hope to God they didn't either. I suspect that they probably discussed it with other celebrities who were similarly attacked and probably, you know, found some solace in the notion that it wasn't just them. I think if there was some notion that they alone were on the receiving end of this, That would have been much harder to take.
0: However, there is one instance Alan tells me about where Siegfried and Roy are deeply upset by how they're portrayed in the media.
6: The only one was during a comic relief broadcast, I believe it was in the very early 90s. It was at Radio City Music Hall.
0: This comedy show happens just a matter of months after Siegfried and Roy's residency at the New York Theater. Billy Crystal, Whoopi Goldberg, Robin Williams. They're gearing up to host Comic Relief 90, a star-studded evening of comedy and compassion.
6: Robin Williams and Billy Crystal did a takeoff of Siegfried and Roy. And there seemed to be a bit of inside information that was then, you know, exaggerated for comic effect. And the only way that some of that would have been Known enough to then exaggerate it would have been if stagehands or others who had worked at Radio City had told Robin and, and Billy those stories. And they were mostly upset, I think, because they felt that, you know, some of the folks who had they had just worked with had sold them out a little bit.
0: I can understand why Siegfried and Roy would be upset. Having their privacy violated by backstage people they trust has to be unsettling. Even today, when I interview former cast and crew members, I'm not exactly sure how to ask about the duo's relationship in a way that doesn't feel like a violation. Here's Steve Freese.
7: You know is it is it okay to suggest that somebody is out if they're not really out, and even in the gay community, there was a lot of this um you know everybody has to come out in their own time and you can't force them and you shouldn't shame them and if they're not doing anything sort of negative or against the the, the gay cause, then you shouldn't you know be questioning it or writing about it, they weren't out there trying to demonize gay people. Well, they, were, they were just trying to sell tickets to their magic show.
0: Hearing all this, I can sense just how exhausting it must be for Siegfried and Roy to grapple with their fame. That pressure makes having a tropical getaway like Puerto Rico even more essential. I can picture them lounging by the ocean, reflecting on simpler times before they were rich and famous, back when they first meet Gina's mom, Kathy.
1: I think they all felt safe with each other, you know, because I don't think... My mom didn't speak any Spanish. Siegfried and Roy certainly didn't speak any Spanish. And I think that's another thing that brought them together, maybe.
0: The more time they spend together, the more Kathy observes.
1: She said that Siegfried had a lot of, um, like, scars and stuff all up his arms and things, and his hands. And she said that he was the one that disciplined the cats a lot, right? And Roy was the one that was there when the cats were giving birth. He was the nurturing one. And I think that that's what drew my mother to him, uh, especially, she really liked Roy. She said Roy was the really cute one. (laughs) I think they're both good looking in my opinion, Um, but she said there was something about that dark hair and he was just like very captivating to her. And they'd go out and they'd be dancing and she really, really liked Roy. But my mom said to me, Gina, You can't change the spots on a leopard. That's just how she put it.
4: You know, Sodom and Gomorrah was like uh, the town back in biblical days that Vegas is today. Sin City. You got a a whole plethora of uh, individuals from all over the world showing up in one place. And, you know, you could just go in and and sit down on a machine and the alcohol was free. In
0: 2003... Michael Game is a detective with the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department.
4: When I moved out here and got introduced into the law enforcement, that's when my life kind of took a turn. I actually worked on a squad that dealt with the Strip. So we were dealing with a lot of drugs, some gang crime, some theft, illegal gambling, you know, learned how to depend on your instinct when... The hairs on the back of your neck grow up and you go, "Okay, something's wrong in here.
0: When Michael is asked to investigate the Siegfried and Roy Tiger attack, he can't believe it. And in retrospect, when I first hear that in addition to the USDA, the police also open an actual case, I'm surprised, too.
4: At that point in my career, I'd seen a lot of crazy stuff. But yeah, it was probably the strangest investigation I was involved with because you're not you normally you're looking at, you know, person on person crimes and now we're looking at this animal. Your initial response is he got bit by one of his animals. Why are we investigating this?
0: Now seems like the right moment to tell you something that to me seems a little strange. Michael is assigned to the Homeland Security Division. Normally his job is to work cases involving counterterrorism. So why would he of all people be called out to investigate a tiger mauling a magician.
4: It was more or less, did somebody in the audience do something to cause the animal to react the way it did? And can we prove it? That was the bottom line, plain and simple. And that is how we approached the investigation. We were very thorough and very complete. Because if you screw something like this up, the political ramifications for the department would have been tremendous.
0: Michael runs background checks on folks who attended the show that night. The police comb through files and do research on the tiger.
4: It was all we did for the next several weeks. We didn't do anything else.
0: The cops interviewed dozens of witnesses, from audience members to the backstage crew, and asked them a laundry list of questions.
4: Have you received threatening notes? You know, has anybody ever
0: walked up to you and said something to you? Has anybody ever approached you? As a veteran cop, Michael knows not to assume too much when it comes to human behavior.
4: An animal acting the way it did, it didn't surprise me. It's an animal. It still has animal tendencies, but human nature always baffles me. It's really hard to determine why a human being does what they do to another human being.
0: next time on Wild Things, Siegfried and Roy.
6: This is Montecore, and tonight is his first appearance at one of the night.
1: He just kind of dropped to the ground, almost like he just fainted.
6: You know, Montecore was helping save his friend to take him to safety.
7: The story was that they had settled on this whole, you know, oh, the tiger was trying to protect Roy.
0: Wild Things, Siegfried, and Roy is an Apple original podcast produced by Outwell Media. Our producer is Alexandra Zaslow. Story editors are Matt Hickey and Mandy Gorenstein. Our editor is Rachel Leitner, with help from Andrew Holtzberger. Anne-Margaret Warner is our associate producer. Adele Sparks is our archival producer. And Ashley Taylor is our line producer. Fact-checking by Sona Avakian. Our original music and main title are by Robert Keysweather and Jonna Bechtold. Audio post-production by 1,000 Birds. Wild Things Siegfried and Roy is executive produced and written by me, Stephen Leckhart. Our executive producer from Atwell Media is Will Malnati. The Atwell Media team also includes Dominique Beckway and Drew Beebe. Legal services provided by Samuel Bayard and Sean Gordon, with representation by Oren Rosenbaum at UTA. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts.